So um, what we're going to do is uh, the bottom of 121b, the second to last line. Amar of Abba Bar Kahana, Amar of Hanina. Rabba Bar Kahana says in the name of Rav Hanina. Pemutais shall base Rebbe, the candlesticks of the house of Rebbe. Mutulo taltlum Shabbos, you're allowed to move them on Shabbos. Amale Reb Zera, Reb Zera says, Benitalum biyade achas ebeshte yadayim. Are we talking about a case where they're small enough they can be carried in one hand, or are we talking about a case where they're only they're large enough they can only be carried in two hands? Are we still considered, are we still considered, um, are you still allowed to move them, or should we be concerned for mukta issues? Like the ones of your father's house that were small, Rashi explains they were small, but the large ones, when you have a very large candlestick, or perhaps like a whole candelabra, you know, with a seven, 13 candles, that's a very heavy situation. People don't move it. So if they're not planning on moving it the whole Shabbos, when they put it down, they were hooked they put it in their mind as if it is now stuck here for the whole Shabbos. They, they, were, they took their mind away from using it. If you take your mind away from using an item on Shabbos, it becomes muktzah, it cannot be moved. Basically, we're in the middle of quoting statements in the name of Rabbi Barakahana, speaking in the name of Rabbi Hanina. The wagons of the house of Rabbi, you're allowed to handle them on Shabbos. Are we talking about a case where they can be, we can be um, moved with one person or even a case where they can be moved with two people, still permitted to move them on Shabbos? Once again, like the ones in your father's house, that they were small. Well, presumably that, I'm guessing that they were small because the first case was small. Rabbi Hanina allowed the house of Rabbi, they allowed them to drink wine that had been brought from a non-Jew on a wagon, even though it only had one seal. Generally speaking, what we say is that a... Um, there are certain types of items that the that in terms of our certainty that they are kosher items, we require two seals. There are certain types of items that we only require one seal. Okay. Now, meat or wine, we require two seals. If it's going to be in the transport of a non-Jew, we need require two seals to ensure that the non-Jew didn't tamper with it. However, he permitted them to drink this wine, even though it only had one seal and was transported by a non-Jew. And Rebbe says, I know that this Rebbe Hanina permitted, but I don't know if he holds that way. If he held like Rebbe Liazar, who Paskins that you only need one seal, and that's Rebbe Hanina held as well. Or perhaps he really held like the Tanakama in, in Abed Zara and held that you do need two seals for wine. But there's something unique about the house of Rebbe. There's something unique is that they were afraid of Rebbe. And therefore, even one seal would be sufficient that the Nanji would not come close to doing it because of their fear of the house of Rebbe. And this leads us to, uh, this is a heter even today, that if, uh, at least some people are willing to rely on this heter, that if you left a bottle of wine in your house with only one seal and you have a non-Jew working for you, but the non-Jew is very afraid that they're going to lose their job. You don't have, the, that itself is going to lead us to believe that they will not tamper with the wine. Even though generally speaking, we do need two seals, but if there's a masa, perhaps it will help. New Mishnah. No. Oh, wait, 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 wait two seals on what? I mean, if you've got a bottle of wine and the cork is still in it and the seal on the, the neck of the bottle hasn't been tampered with, how could the non-Jew possibly have done anything to it? Yeah, so some people make that calculation, exactly what you're saying, Earl. Some people make what, that what would the other seal be, I guess? Well, the you know? seal, so when it comes to a bottle of wine, the seal might be the cork plus the, plus the seal on top. Oh, I see. Yeah, literally, yeah. yeah. So does that mean you can't leave the house with an open bottle of wine for the housekeeper? If it's Mabushal. 
thorough is right. If it's mavushal, you're good to go. If it's not mavushal, technically you should really try to put it in a place that is either high up or a place that she's not likely to get into, and then and then hope to rely on the the idea that we're talking about, which is the emasta. She doesn't want to get fired, so and there's nothing in it for her to 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 do it. But you definitely are not supposed to leave an open bottle of not mavushal wine in a place where the non-Jewish housekeeper is likely to move it. Like let's say you left it out on your kitchen table, she's likely to move it. That's a real problem. And the, the, the real solution to this, Wayne, is to just never leave a bottle uh, open and not finished. It's very easy. Never solution. leave it half empty. Very easy solution. If you're... Didn't, didn't we learn something? What was that? Didn't, didn't we learn something about this? I, I can't remember where about meat also. Meat also. Not leaving happening. meat out. Raw meat. Raw meat cannot be left out unless it has a you seal. You know, meat like it's, yeah, same thing. Yeah, same, same, thing, yeah. same idea. If you, you can guys also remember, solve the, you can also solve the problem simply by only having schnapps and marijuana. That's true. My uncle, you know, my uncle one time had an awful story. He's a from Jew, religious Jew, and um, he went to the. He was working in an office, and he had brought a sandwich from home, like a turkey sandwich or something. And he brought it. He put it in the fridge. And he wrapped it up, and he accidentally took someone else's sandwich, and he was eating ham. Right. Now, if he if he would have put if he would have put two seals on the sandwich the way he was supposed, to, he never would have come to eat sandwich because he wouldn't have uh, he would have had to take off the two seals first, right? But he had not done that, which he should have done. Uh, but yeah, awful story. Okay, You have a non-Jew. Who, oh, now we're going to get into what we call a Misa Shabbos that was done by a non-Jew. In other words, a malacha that was done on Shabbos by a non-Jew. Are you is the Jew permitted to benefit from that malacha? So this is a very very important halacha. People think that you can, there's, there's two different issues on Shabbos when it comes to a non-Jew, okay? One issue is what we call Amir al-Nachri. You're not allowed to ask a non-Jew to do something for you. But everybody thinks, okay, that's one halacha. Okay, but as long as you hint to the non-Jew, you're allowed to ask the non-Jew to do anything. Completely false. It is not true at all. It's a complicated topic. We're not going to get into it at length right now. But what's also important to recognize that if a non-Jew even just does something for you, never being asked to do it, but he does something as a favor for a Jew and it is considered to be a Maisa Shabbos. It is a violation of a Torah principle on Shabbos. You're not allowed to benefit from it on Shabbos. And that's what this mission is going to deal with. Nachri shehidlik asaner. A non-Jew lights a candle. Mishtamish lo'ere Yisrael. A Jew can benefit from its light. The imbishvil Yisrael, however, if he lit it for the sake of a Jew, also you're not allowed to benefit from it. Let's say he drew up water from a well that is in the Rishasarabim, in the public domain, to give his own animal to drink. Then Yisrael could bring his animal and have him drink from the trough after the non-Jewish animal drank from it. But if he did it for the sake of the, not, of the Jew, then it's still forbidden, because it's forbidden to benefit if the non-Jew did it for your sake. The assumption is that the non-Jew did it for your sake. It might be similar, once again, to Amir al-Nachri, right? to, to asking the non-Jew to do something for you. But let's say Nanju makes a ramp to get off of a ship, right? They have the, the, the what is it called? The, the thing that they do when they put the... Gangplank. Gangplank, exactly. They put, the, they put it down, uh, you know, when they, they come to shore and they tie up the, the boat, the ship, and then they put down the plank for you to walk down, the gangplank. So, Yisrael, the Nachri put it down on Shabbos, then Yisrael could go walk down it after him. But if he did it for the sake of Yisrael, also, then it's forbidden to walk on it. 
There was a, a story of Gamliel and the elders, right? The rabbis, the sages, they were coming on a boat. And the non Jew made a ramp to go come down on. And the Gamliel and the sages who were with him went down this ramp. Now, so we basically just went through three different cases. We went through a case of lighting a candle, went through a case of filling up the water from the well, and we went through the case of building a ramp. The Gemara is going to say, why do we need all three cases? But Tzricha, and we need all three cases. We would only have said the case of lighting the lamp. Beautiful idea. A ner, a candle that is lit for one, is exactly the same as a candle that is lit for a hundred. In other words, that when the non-Jew lights a candle, there is no difference if you benefit from it or not. The act of lighting a candle would have been exactly the same whether he's doing it for 100 people, whether he's doing it for one. Maybe when it comes to a case of water, there, would, there might have been a forbidden, it might have been prohibited for us to benefit from the water that the non Jew took up from the well for the sake of his own animal. Why? Maybe he'll take more water up for the sake of the Yisrael. And that's why it'd be forbidden to benefit from it. So even if it's permitted to benefit from the candle, that's because there's no reason to assume that when he lit the candle for his own sake, he put more oil in for you. That's not, there's no reason to assume that. But when it comes to building, when it comes to pouring, to dragging water up from the well, there's actually reason to believe that perhaps he would have added more for you and therefore you're not allowed to benefit from it. The Kavesh Lamali. So what about the case of the ramp? What's, what's new about the case of the ramp that it needs to say it separately? We wanted to tell you the story of Gamaliel and the and the sages that to tell you what we call Maisa Rav. That is to say that when you have a halacha, that's one thing. But when you have a halacha and then you also have a story showing that Chazal actually went with that halacha. So there's something we call halacha, but it doesn't, that is the halacha, but we don't actually practically speaking do that. This is a very important thing to tell us, well, there's actually a story in which the sages did it. A non-Jew collects grass. Machal Akhra Bisrael, a Jew can then let the animal, his animal, eat the grass afterwards. So in Bishril Yisrael, also, but if you collect it for the Jew's sake, it's forbidden to let his animal eat from it. Mila Mayal Hashkis Bahamte, he gathered water for, to give his own animal to drink. Mashka Akhra Bisrael, the Yisrael can give his own animal water after that. The Imishril Yisrael, but if he did it for the sake of the Yisrael, he gathered that water, also, then it's forbidden for him to benefit from it. This is all true when the non-Jew does not know the Jew. If the non-Jew knows the Jew, then it's indeed forbidden for the Jew to benefit. Why? Because then we might assume that indeed he did it on purpose for the Jew. Any is this so? You're permitted to put your animal next to grass on Shabbos. You're not permitted to put your animal next to mukta next to something which is not allowed to be handled on Shabbos. Why? Because if it's something that you're not allowed to handle on Shabbos, then you're not allowed to put it next to your animal because you might actually come to handle it. But if it's something that the animal is going to be eating grass, right, on Shabbos, we're not concerned that you're going to come to cut it yourself, right? So the question is, if so, then why are you not allowed to put your animal in front of it even if the non-Jew cut it on Shabbos? So, um, so what happened is you, you, you're not allowed to put, I'm sorry, the other way around. Even if the, if the non-Jew gathered the grass on Shabbos for his own animal, why are you allowed to let your animal eat from it? You're not allowed to let, put your animal in front of muksa items on Shabbos because you might come to pick it up then. The answer is you didn't put the animal right in front of the muksa item. You put your animal close to the muksa grass and then the animal went and ate from the muksa grass. Over there, there's no concern that you're going to come to pick it up yourself. Okay? Amar Mar, Mar says, This is only true where the non-Jew did not recognize you. But Abu Makiri also, the non-Jew recognized the Jew, then it's forbidden for the Jew to benefit because then we say perhaps he did it for the sake of the Jew. Ha Rabbi Gamliel, 
Makiroi. Habe, what do you mean? Rabbi Gamliel, who was certainly a, a great Torah scholar and was the exilarch at one point. Uh, actually, this is Rabbi Gamliel, who was the, the Nasi at one point, right? And, and also, he was very well known, and he was traveling on the ship together with him. How can you say that the Nanju didn't know him? The Nanju certainly knew him when he built the ramp, and still he held you were allowed to go down it. Amar Abayah says the case is that the Nanju built this ramp when, when Rabbi Gamliel was not there. So then clearly, he did not build it with the intention of Rabbi Gamliel. Rava says that even if you could say it was even in front of him, it would be permitted. Rava held that if it's the, the concept of that if there's absolutely no difference in building the ramp for one person, building it for 100 people, then even if he does recognize you, you're still allowed to benefit from it. Because there's no reason to think that he had any intention of building it for you any differently than he would have done for himself. Therefore, you're allowed to benefit from it. Mesfei, the Gemara asks the question. In a Bryce, Rangaliel says, since he made it not in front of us, therefore we're allowed to go down it. This is not like Rava. Rava says the reason why you're allowed to go down it, even if you would have made it in front of him, it doesn't make a difference. Since the Naju made the ramp for his own sake and he didn't do anything differently, whether it was for his own sake or for someone else's sake, then you're allowed to benefit from it, according to Rava. So why does Rangaliel have to say that the reason why you're allowed to benefit from it is because he didn't do it in front of me? You have to say this. Maybe what he really meant is that since he made it, then we're allowed to go down it. Tashma. The Gemara says, let's come here a, uh, a proof. What is this? You have a city in which you have Jews and non-Jews living in it. And you have in it a bathhouse, right? Now, this bathhouse, that people are bathing there on Shabbos. If most people there are non-Jewish, then you're allowed to go bathe in it immediately on Matzah Shabbos because it was heated for the non-Jews in the city. However, if most people living in that town are from B'nai Yisrael, then you have to wait the amount of time that it will take for the water to be heated up on Matzah Shabbos. Why? Because you're saying like this. The water in the bathhouse was heated up. It could have been heated up only for a non-Jew. But since the majority of people in this town were Jews, it was heated up also for Jews. Now, do you heat it up any hotter because there's going to be Jews in it too? No. You heat it up the same amount no matter what. So you heat it up the amount that you needed for the non-Jew. And still, you're not allowed to benefit from the work that was done on Shabbos because it might have also benefited Jews. And you have to wait on Matzah Shabbos till the amount of time that it would take for the water to get heated up. Right? Everybody with me? Make sense? Yeah. yeah. So, so the question is, well, if that's so, then... Why over there do you have to wait that amount of time? It wasn't done for the Jew. The difference is like this. Over there, it's true that he could have done it only for himself. But when the bathhouse owner is heating up the water in the bathhouse, he's thinking to himself, who are the majority of my clientele? And that's why he heats up the water in the bathhouse. So therefore, we look at it as if it's actually been done specifically for the Jews. Tashima, the Gemara says another proof. You have a lamp that's burning at a masiba at a joyous occasion. If it's mostly non-Jews, you're permitted to benefit from its light. If it's mostly Jews, then it's forbidden to benefit from its light. If it's half and half, then also forbidden to benefit from its light. Now, Rava had said that as long as it's a candle, as long as it's a ramp, that there is nothing different about building it for many people, nothing different about lighting it for many people. It's exactly the same action. And it was intentionally done for a non-Jew. A Jew is allowed to benefit, according to Rava. Over here, we're saying that as long as it's even half and half, a Jew cannot benefit. Hasanami, 
Kimadaki over there too. When they light it in the scenario where at the party is going to be half Jews, half non-Jews, Adaiti the Ruba Madaki. They light it for the purpose of the majority of people who are going to be at this party. And therefore, if it's majority Jews or even half and half Jews, you're forbidden to benefit from that candle. Shmuel Ekla Lebe Aventurin. Shmuel went up to the house of Aventurin. Asahu Nachri Adlik Shraga. Nanju came and lit a Shraga lamp. Ahadrinu Shmuel Laape. So Shmuel you know, turned his face away from it so he wouldn't get any benefit from it. Even the Chaz of the Aisi Shtar, the Kakari, when he saw that Nanju came and brought some sort of a newspaper and he starts reading from it in front of the light, Amar Daiti Dinapshe Have. Clearly, he lit it for his own sake. Ahadrinu in Iu Laape, Gabe Shraga. Therefore, he turned his face back towards the lamp and benefited from the lamp. Okay, now we start Kala Kalim. Kala Kalim is the first parak that directly deals with the question of muksa on Shabbos. Okay? Kala Kalim and Italian Shabbos. All utensils are permitted to be handled on Shabbos. The Dalse Seyen Imahen. And the doors of the utensils can also be handled on Shabbos. Apalpishan and Sparky Shabbos. And even if the doors fell off on Shabbos, you're still allowed to use them on Shabbos. They are not similar to the doors of a house. What? Who said anything about doors of a house? Because the doors of the house are not allowed to be used on Shabbos because they're not considered to be prepared to be used on Shabbos. But the doors of the utensil are considered to be prepared to be used on Shabbos. The Gemara is going to get into that a little further what exactly we're talking about over here. A person can take a hammer for the sake of splitting nuts. The Gemara is going to talk about what type of hammer are we talking about here. A kardam Kardam is an axe to cut out a devela, which is a um, a cake of figs. Megira logerba es ha A megira is um, like some sort of a, a a saw, right? For the sake of of slicing the cheese, right? You don't have a good uh, cheese slicer to so use a saw. Magrepa ligrepa es ha gregris. Magrepa is some sort of a garden uh, utensil implement. So you're using the magrepa to to take out the the egregious, which are the dried figs. As harachas, as hamalges. What's harachas again? Malges is a, some sort of fork. In this context, it means a pitchfork. What's a rachas? Rachas is a pala. Oh. What is it? It's a winnowing shovel. A winnowing shovel. Okay. A rachas, a winnowing shovel. So you take your winnowing shovel. I'm not sure. I guess a winnowing shovel. It sounds to me like it should be a pitchfork, right? Don't I always picture winnowing? No, no. There is a pit, there is a winnowing shovel and a pitchfork. Yeah. So what is a winnow? A winnowing shovel means the item that you use to throw the wheat up in the ear. No. I don't yeah. Know. So a winnowing shovel or a pitchfork. I think it's no, the same. I, no. It, no. Ma, ma, Malgez is definitely a pitchfork. Yeah. And rachas is something else. I'm just wondering what the what it is. Okay, fine. Oh. So either way, you take this item. It must have some sort of tines on it. Less is a lovely cotton. To, to take food for a, um, to, to put something on it for a kid. Esa koish for esa karakar. A koish was something, and karakar were both things uh, related to weaving. Uh, I can't remember offhand what they were. See Rashi. Must have a cut. One of them is a spindle. A thimble? Okay. A spindle? Spindle. Spindle. A spindle. Okay. Um, the thread is wrapped on. It's like a dowel. Okay. Point on it. Got you. Okay. So a kosh is a plach pushel and a karkar is a rail. I, I don't remember right now, but yes, yeah, so one is a spindle. And what was the other one? It says a weaver's reed, but I have no idea what that is. A weaver's reed. Okay. A weaver's well, reed. Has points on it, okay. What would you use with it? You would use a litchay right? To, uh, to, to, to stick it into something else. 
Lachal So basically, you use it as a um, as a skewer. Rashi says you would use it to to pierce an item that was a soft fruit, either strawberries or other types of soft fruit. You would take a small needle to, to take out a kite, to take out a, a splinter. Uh, not really a splinter, a kite is really a thorn, but you know, something of that nature. Then if you're talking about a, a large needle, right, a, a knitting needle, right, that you would take to open up a door, right, to pick a lock with. And all vessels can be handled. And even if the doors fell off on Shabbos, and certainly if they fell off before Shabbos. Gemara says, If it fell off on Shabbos, they're considered to be something that you were already going to be using on Shabbos because they were still attached at the beginning of Shabbos and could be used in its original fashion. And therefore, they're considered muchan. They're considered prepared to be used. Right, the Gemara soon is going to get into the idea of what muchan and mukta is. Right, muchan means prepared to be used, mukta means set aside not to be used. Right, so this is where the Gemara is going to get into this quite shortly. And I think in the next stop, it's going to talk about it. So, if they're prepared to be used on Shabbos because you're already going to be using it's the father utensil, then that then it makes sense that you're permitted to still use the door even after it falls off. But if it fell off on Friday, then then when Shabbos came, they weren't part of something that you're going to be using. This is Every type of vessel can be handled on Shabbos, but also stay in Imohan. And its doors can be handled with it. Even though it fell off during the week, it could be handled on Shabbos. But certainly, if it fell off on Shabbos, it could be handled on Shabbos. Dallas of different types of um a door of different types of uh, chests and, and uh, other, you know, tevas and migdals, these are all different types of, uh, of chests, right? But the different shapes, I guess. Nightland, you're allowed to take them on Shabbos. But you cannot, you can take them off on Shabbos, but you cannot put them back on Shabbos. Or the door of a chicken coop, you're not allowed to take it off, you're not allowed to put it back. The Gemara is going to say what the difference is. The reason why a case of, uh, you know, a chicken coop door, you're not allowed to take it off, because since the chicken coop is attached to the ground, by attaching the door or putting the door or taking the door off or putting the door back on, you're going to be attaching something that is attached to the ground. Okay, so when it comes to building or breaking something, the halacha is if it's attached to the ground, then it's building on a Torah level. If you break it on, from something that's attached to the ground, it's breaking on a Torah level. So if you have a door of something that's attached to the ground, i.e. a chicken coop, then it's obvious why you can't take it off and put it back, because that would be binyan, building, or stira, demolishing on a Torah level. Elo shal shidu shal teva shal migdal, mai. But if it is, um, if it's the, the door that goes on these, uh, the chests of drawers or whatever the type of chest that we're talking about here, then Mike and Sover, what's going on over here? What, why are we having two different halachas? If you hold that there's a, a prohibition of building, even when it comes to vessels, you're not allowed to build on Shabbos on a Torah level. Then there would also be a, a lav of breaking a vessel, and you wouldn't be allowed to take the door off either. But if there's no lav, if there's no uh, iser of, of breaking something when it comes to a vessel that's not attached to the ground, then there also should not be a prohibition of attaching it. So why in the first set of cases do we say you're allowed to take it off or you're not allowed to put it back? What difference is it? Amar says, Really, they hold that you're indeed forbidden to build, indeed forbidden to, to detach, even when it comes to vessels that are not attached to the ground. You're forbidden to take off the door or put back the door. 
You have to change the Lushan. You have to say that it doesn't say you're permitted to take it off, but you're not permitted to put it back. Rather, what it means is if they are already removed, you're allowed to handle it, but you're not allowed to put it back because you're not even allowed to remove it because it's the same problem. Really, he holds that even when it comes to something that's not attached to the ground, you're not allowed to remove it, not allowed to put it back. Rava Rava says, Rava says, I have two problems with what you're saying. Kada First of all, that's just not what it says. It says they may be removed. They may be detached. It doesn't say if they right. have been detached. It's a very obvious question. Also, the very language that it uses is in the second problem with it, speaking in the, in the language is it says, but you're not allowed to return it. Implication is you are allowed to take it off. So there are two problems with the language. What's Abaya going to do with these problems? So this follows, I probably have mentioned it in the past, Abaya and Rava, very often, their machlekes is based on how carefully do you want to adhere to the words of the Mishnah, right? Abaya is not so much of a, of a textualist. Rava is very much a textualist. Right? Abaya mean, is a liberal. Abaya is a liberal. I knew you would like mm-hmm. that. So <laughs> you're going to identify with him forevermore. But no, so it's not, not really, it's, it's a question of how, how much are you willing to veer away from the words of the Brisa to make it make sense based on what you think it really should be saying. So Abaya is willing to do that, Rava is not. And this is whenever there is Machlegas Abaya and Rava in which they are taking sides about a question of how careful you want to adhere to the words, Rava is always on the more careful side, Abaya is always on the less careful side. This does not, however, mean that there are not cases in which Rava will argue with someone else in which he takes the less careful side and the other one takes more careful and vice versa with Abaya, where Abaya will argue with a different Amaira, very often he could take the more careful textual ana- adherence and the other Tana will take, another Amaira will take a less careful textual adherence. It's interesting that they, that they had the different Messiah like that. Okay. Um, so Rava has these two problems with Abaya's shot. Elam Rava, therefore Rava says his own answer. Rather, he holds that there's no such thing as breaking, no such thing as building when it comes to a vessel that's not attached to the ground. The concern is that perhaps you're going to knock it in with nails. So basically like this. You're forbidden to, there's no such thing as building, no such thing as, as building or demolishing when it comes to taking a vessel off of something or putting a, back, a door off of a vessel or, a door back, or putting a door back on the vessel. It's not really going to be binyan. However, if you were knocking in with nails, that's more of a concern because that's the concern of Makkabah Patish. Knocking in with nails, it's not a binyan issue. It's Makkabah Patish, the final hammer blow, and that's a different issue. So Rava says the reason why you're allowed to take off the door is because there's no issue of taking off a door. The reason why you're not allowed to put the door back is because then you might come to attach it with nails, which would be the issue of Makkabah Patish. Nigel of Cornus, the Gemara says, uh, said that a man could take a hammer for the sake of opening up nuts. Other view, the Cornus shall a guys Huna says you're only allowed to do this. Rabbi Huda says you're only allowed to do this if it is the hammer of nuts. Aval, however, shall But if it was the hammer of the blacksmith, you're not allowed to use it to, to crack open a sledgehammer. You can't use a sledgehammer to crack open uh, nuts. Kasavar, what does he hold? Davar Something which its main purpose, its main malacha is done. Main labor would be used for something which is forbidden. Even to use it in a permissible fashion on Shabbos is forbidden. This is the famous idea, famous machlekes, like this. If you have a klisha malachte le'iser, you have a, a vessel that its main purpose, its primary purpose is to be used in a forbidden fashion. Are you allowed to use it on Shabbos in a way that is permitted? 
So to take a hammer that generally speaking is used for a forbidden labor on Shabbos, so you're allowed to use it on Shabbos in a permitted fashion. To take a scissor that's normally used for cutting things. Now, you're not allowed to cut things on Shabbos, but let's say you want to take that scissor and you want to cut uh, you know, a piece of fruit in two, right? For some reason, you want to use a scissor for that, right? Then indeed, you would be permitted to do it. But the, the first man, Rabbi Yehuda, says you're not permitted because he holds that you're only permitted to use something which, which is purpose is in a, in a permitted way to be used on Shabbos. So not something that has a not permitted purpose on Shabbos. Its primary purpose is not permitted on Shabbos. You're not permitted to use it in a permitted fashion on Shabbos either. Amalei Rabbah, Rabbah says, according to you, what do you do with the Seifa? The end of the Mishnah, what it teaches us. Right? The, the winnowing shovel and the Fork, lost his love of katan, that you're allowed to use it to put food on it for a, for a kid. Rachas is Is that true that normally the primary purpose of using a rachas and a malgez is for a katan and for a kid? Elam Rabbah, so Rabbah therefore says, Kornish Shalnafachan Lefaseyabayagazin. Indeed means you're allowed to use the blacksmith's hammer for the sake of cracking the nuts. The Savar, what does he hold? Let's go a tiny bit further. The Savar, Davar Shemalachta, the Isser, something which its primary purpose is for something that is forbidden on Shabbos. It is indeed permitted to use it for something that is permitted on Shabbos. To use it for a permit, in a permitted way on Shabbos is permissible to be used. Right? This is a, a big question in, in Muktza. When you have something that is, it is Muktza, it is, it, is, um, it is set aside for being used on Shabbos because its primary purpose is something that cannot be used on Shabbos. So you're permitted to use it in a permitted fashion on Shabbos. And that is Machlekes, Rav Yehuda, and Rabbah. And we pass in that indeed it is permitted to be used on Shabbos if its normal purpose is, um, if its normal use, primary use is a forbidden way, but you're still allowed to use it on Shabbos in a different fashion. That is how we pass in. Okay. Use my sword to, to cut the challah. Yes, yes. So you can use your sword to cut challah. I wonder if it's sharp enough to cut challah. Um, sharp enough. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Um, the, the thing is, though, according to um, some, you're only allowed to do that if, if you either don't have a item to use it in a regular way. In other words, if you have a challah knife, maybe you're not allowed to use your sword, according to some. According to others, even if it's in the other room and your sword is hanging on your wall and your challah knife is in the other room and you're already washed and you're sitting at the table and you already got up and got the salt and you're too lazy to get up again, perhaps you're permitted to reach behind you, grab that sword and bring it come crashing down on that challah. According to some, it might be permitted. According to others, you might have to get up and go to the other room to get the challah knife. So although it is permitted to use a forbidden, an item whose primary purposes are in a forbidden fashion, you're permitted to use it in a permitted, for a permitted uh, action on Shabbos. That being said, if you have another item that its primary purpose is in a permitted fashion, maybe you should try to use that first.